Welcome to Standpoint, a podcast from India discussing global issues of the moment. I'm Shruti Kapella. And I'm Orgo Sengupta. And today, the topic for our discussion is social media and democracy. India today is on the verge of general elections 2019. This general election comes on the back of the Brexit poll, the Brazilian elections, and of course, the American presidential elections. Social media is again expected to play a critical role. But social media is not only about elections. As we saw with the massacre in New Zealand recently, it was live streamed and 1.5 million videos were circulating worldwide of this massacre. In this light, the key question that arises is, what is the influence that social media has on democracies worldwide? And should we do something about it? Is it desirable to do something about it? Today, our guest is noted TV journalist, India's foremost anchor, and also a social media influencer with nearly 9 million Twitter followers, Rajdeep Sardesai, who also wrote a best-selling account of the 2014 election campaign. Uh, So Rajdeep, welcome. It's great honor and privilege for us uh, to have you here. I wanted to just start off by actually seeing that that your career maps very easily onto the changes in the media landscape itself. Uh, You started as a print journalist, then you went on to become the foremost TV anchor, and then, of course, now on social media as well. So could you tell us a little bit how you assess the the work in these three mediums? First of all, thank you very much uh, for having me, uh, Shruti and Orgo. Uh, it's, uh, It's another education for me to be doing a podcast. I don't think I've done a professional podcast quite like this, but I'm always uh, happy to to change with the times. And that really reflects uh, my answer to your question, because when I joined this profession in 1988 and covered my first general election in 1989, uh, I think television was just Doordarshan. Uh, There were half a dozen mainline dailies. I reported for the Times of India, where I was employed at the time. And uh, there was certainly nothing remotely like the internet, uh, mobile technology, uh, nothing quite like a podcast. And yet it was quite simply a wonderful election to cover because uh, I think the fact is that Indians, Indian elections, irrespective of the the changing media world, have remained, uh, to quote the Prime Minister, a festival of democracy. I mean... Uh, the uh, I, the democracy part we can question and challenge and 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 whether that democracy is increasingly manipulated uh, whether that democracy really has the true meaning that it should but it is a festival you know the the sights and sounds of an election campaign uh, still remain more or less the same uh, uh, the kind of drum beat and uh, the the large rallies that are held are still very much there and, and and are uniquely Indian. So I think in that sense, from 89 to 2019, uh, India hasn't changed that dramatically in terms of the uh, the way an election is choreographed and organized and orchestrated. What has happened, though, of course, is media and technology have forced the clever politician to adjust and be flexible like the clever journalist. Uh, you know, you, you, you change with the times 
And I think the clever politicians therefore use WhatsApp much more. You've got the prime minister doing video conferences rather than having to go now and address a rally. He can just sit in the prime minister's office and just get connected to 500 different uh, points in the country. So I think that's what's changed the ability of the politician to use the media better, to use technology, to use these 400 plus private uh, television news channels to send out messaging, to have WhatsApp groups right down to every uh, booth level. And we are talking of nine plus boots. So I think it's uh, it's the ability to change in terms of using the technology, which is which is interesting to, to observe. But the basics of an Indian election, that you need to go and get that last mile voter and get him to the booth and vote for you, uh, remain the same. So the face-to-face -face interaction or the interaction with the public still has a premium in an, in, in, in an Indian campaign? I think it does. I would, you could argue that uh, politicians needed to do much more door-to-door -door campaigning themselves mm -hmm. 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't, you know, the, the kind of mohalla meetings that you needed to have uh, were more perhaps 30 years ago than today. Today, you don't always have to go to every mohalla to connect to every uh, to every voter. You can use your booth workers more effectively to do that or you can use WhatsApp messaging to connect and give a sort of personal touch to the message. Uh, so the face-to-face -face interaction may have reduced, but you can't do without it. It's not as if you you live in a world where you can say, I will say, you know, I, I, I don't need to be on the street. So I think that's, you, you still need to be seen on the street by your voters. Uh, that does matter. It matters more in an MLA election than an MP election. I think an MP election, uh, people now, the sense one gets is often vote for the candidate at the top uh, the, the leader of a party, who they want as their prime minister or who they want, uh, maybe in some instances, their chief minister, much more than who they want as their legislator or their uh, parliamentarian. In your, in your book, when you covered the 2014 elections, I thought there were several very interesting paragraphs about how the media is changing the elections. And uh, I'm just going to read out one paragraph and see whether that same assessment works in 2019 or not. And you've written that we aren't yet a tele-democracy in the American style. Nor is media spin enough to turn an election. Indian elections are still won and lost on a complex interplay of local level allegiances and a robust organizational machinery on the ground. But while your debating skills on prime time won't prove decisive, they are a useful weapon to possess on the electoral battlefield. News television can set the agenda. It may be awfully noisy, but it is heard. Do you think news television has become less important over the next over the last five years? I don't think it's become less important, Orgo. I think what has happened is that news television now has uh, another uh, medium competing for attention, i.e. social media. Uh, I think in 2014, if you look at Twitter's uh, spread or Facebook's spread, uh, a lot has changed in the last five years. Uh, therefore, the uh, ability to use Facebook and Twitter or WhatsApp to, to reach out to people is much greater. That doesn't mean that television is still not an important arena where politics is uh, practiced and where which you use to communicate messages to millions of people. Uh, but at the end of the day, you have 400 plus TV news channels. So TV has got more fragmented. Uh, while a Facebook account of a politician or a Twitter account of a politician can 
give that politician the capacity to reach instantly to millions of people in a more personalized and possibly less fragmented manner. Uh, ditto the case with these WhatsApp groups that political parties organize. So I think TV now faces competition uh, compared to 2014. 2014, I think TV was the, uh, was the king of the ring. Uh, I think 2014 was India's first big election fought almost entirely uh, for television. I think in 2019, you're moving towards a multimedia space where television is just one of the various weapons available to you to win the vote. But it's very interesting what you say. Uh, do you think then social media enables the personalization of politics in the sense that it is, it is what is leading to the rise of, as it were, what is now being called a presidential campaign in India? We saw that in 2014. And elsewhere as well, the large strongmen leaders and it's kind of related to a follow-up question that do you think that social media works better or why do you think right-wing parties and groups have been able to better use uh, social media? Because if you look at India itself, Sashi, Shashi Tharoor was one of the first people to join Twitter and had a very large following, now no, not so longer, uh, you know, as large as, say, in comparison to even you. Uh, and somehow, you know, you know, he hasn't been able to use it in, as effectively as, say, someone like Modi has? Great question. And I think that really is the nub of the issue. I think somewhere Twitter and Facebook have personalized politics to the extent that look at what the prime minister is doing at the moment uh, with his Mabhi Chokidar campaign. He has got all his ministers and party leaders and followers to to change their Twitter handle in a way to Chokidar, uh, you know, and the name of the individual. So thereby getting the 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 word Chokidar to resonate in this large social media universe space and, and give a sense that you too, as a voter, as a citizen, are somewhere uh, part of the prime minister's agenda for change. Uh, and, and I think strongmen leader, uh, leaders are able to do that more effectively because their entire politics works around the personality. You know, they are not creatures of a party system. Mr. Modi is an interesting uh, uh, example, uh, is interesting in that respect because he's emerged through the party system as a pracharak, as an RSS man who then was loaned to the BJP. But his style is very personalized. Uh, he is less of a believer in the collective as much as he is in the individual. And therefore, Twitter, Facebook, uh, uh, you know, the Facebook page of the Prime Minister. The and the apps. And the apps that he has, the Namo app. So he uses the Namo app as a way of creating a community of Namo followers. He is using uh, Twitter and uh, uh, as now creating a community of Chokidars, uh, giving the you know, a sense that we are all in this project together. It's a very, very clever and effective way of doing politics. And strongmen are perhaps better, pose, uh, better poised to do this. We've seen it in Brazil. Uh, mm -hmm. We've seen it in, U in the US. In the Philippines. In, in the Philippines. We're seeing the rise of this right-wing strongman in an age where technology allows you to control the media narrative uh, through these personalized forms, your app, your... Twitter, your Facebook yeah. handle. But then there does seem to be a change from what you've written in your 2014 book. Because then it seems to me that social media is basically making elections a matter of spin. Who can spin better? Because it's personalized, the strongmen are dominating. It seems to me that it's about whoever has a better PR machinery, whoever can spin better, that wins social, me that wins social media and consequently has a great chance of winning the elections. I think 
Orgo, let's separate two points here. I think the media spin, which you can do very effectively through social media, manipulate the public discourse, allows you, in a sense, to dominate the political narrative or set the political narrative, as the Prime Minister is doing at the moment with his Chokidar agenda. Does it win you votes? Is it decisive to, to win you an election in rural Chhattisgarh, in rural Jharkhand, in an area where, in Marathwada, where there have been three successive years of, of drought? Can it... Can it can it ensure that that voter forgets all the local issues of the time and is only part of this national mission uh, and, and chooses to vote for you for that? That is still up for, uh, uh, you know, uh, up for question. I think that the jury is still out on that limited point of whether this media narrative or media spin that you are successfully able to create using social media will enable you to actually win an election. I think in that sense, 2019 is a test case. Because if that does happen, and the BJP does score a big victory in this election, then I think you will find others trying to replicate it at various levels. But do you think that uh, social media, particularly, say, campaigns like the Mehbi Chaukidar uh, campaign, are in a way obfuscating or denying the possibility of political debate and killing of political ideas and deliberation, which is a very important aspect of democracy because what you're looking for is followers, quite literally, as the Twitter word goes, or loyalists and declarations of loyal loyalism. Whereas at least even even if the television debates were very hostile, a bit of a Punch and Judy show, they at least allowed for two perspectives to emerge on the same screen. Whereas I think there is something something different happening with Twitter. Or, and Because the only way the debate then happens is through trolling, and which is very vicious, mm -hmm. in which marginalized people, say for instance women, uh, women journalists in this country, have you know, been suffering for a long, long time with death threats, rape threats, and the and the like. So there is this other problem with, with Twitter. So I was wondering what you think, whether this is actually killing debate and what is its, its relationship is to gendered and other forms of identity. Look, I think the nature of television debate in any case in recent times had become raucous and polarized. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the television debate was truly enlightening or empowering in any really meaningful manner. Mm -hmm. So I think the decline of television almost predated the rise of social media. Mm -hmm. uh, I think with the rise of social media, in a sense, you could argue that notion of that television debate, that raucous, polarized mm -hmm. television debate becomes even more irrelevant. Mm -hmm. uh, I think social media has, in a sense, coarsened the debate further mm -hmm. because, uh, you, you know, the... Uh, or, or allowed you to manipulate the, the, the debate in your favor in a much more di direct manner than even television allowed. As you said, TV at the end of the day usually had a Congress and a BJP mm -hmm. representative in a studio. Mm -hmm. uh, on social media, uh, you don't necessarily have two points of view. What is happening though is that the other parties are also catching up. I, th I thought it was interesting that a few weeks ago or months ago, Mayavati, the Bahujan Samaj Party leader, also joined Twitter. Uh, I mean, she even, felt compelled to, even though right. this is not her forte. But I'm, you know, she felt and she's disadvantaged as a woman, as a as as a Dalit. These these are sure. not. You so, know. in my view, it represents the arrival, in a sense, of social media that even traditional uh, 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 politicians now are embracing social media as a necessary means of communicating mm -hmm. their message. Uh, but you do need uh, an army out there 
to actually ensure that your message goes out more effectively. Yes. And that's where the right-wing strongman leaders tend to breed that kind of loyalist army, mm -hmm. which is more than willing to take that message across. But you're quite right. I think as a result, the discourse has become less civilized. The discourse is more prone to manipulation. The discourse is more one-sided. And dare I say that the discourse could lead to... Uh, an autocratic tendency emerging in our politics where it's my way or the highway. Either you accept my viewpoint or you're treated as anti-national. But do you think this Twitter is anti-women in some ways? Do, it, look, women certainly are, uh, uh, you know, it's not just women. It's, it, it's, uh, it's several vulnerable groups who don't have the same access perhaps to, uh, to, to, hit, to, striking, uh, to have a forum to strike back. You know, where are the forums, for example, in this country for the farmer groups mm -hmm. who have been protesting and who have come on the street? Sure. It's not as if there haven't been farmer protests organized in this country, but where are the fora for those farmers to amplify their message using social media? Right. They've been able to organize using social media, which is interesting. Yes. And I think we've got to recognize that. A Dalit protest last year on a Bharat Band was virtually leaderless, but was organized using social media, using WhatsApp, sending out messages Similarly, with some of the farmer protests in Maharashtra and other parts of the country. But beyond that, will they be able to use their, uh, uh, will their voice be heard about the cacophony? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think that reflects on not just so much social media, but just the prior, prior, you see, social media still remains dominated, I think, by an urban middle class narrative. Interesting. What? That's that's that you know what by and large the urban middle class drives the uh, that drives the social media narrative by and large. That's right. Maybe that's true, but actually, if we look at the numbers, the biggest growth in social media usage in India over the course of the last two areas, last two years, has been in rural areas. Are, you, are you also putting WhatsApp in in there? Yeah, WhatsApp is also WhatsApp is also included in that in, in, in that social media. Uh, yeah, so if, yeah, there are very many different kinds of social media platforms that exist, but I'm including usage of Facebook, YouTube, WhatsApp into that. Twitter and is soon not very we'll have popular. To add TikTok. Yes. Soon we'll have and to add TikTok. And TikTok as well. Yes. But I think uh, it was an interesting point that you're making that, you know, how the discourse has become sort of fairly uncivil and crass because of social media. And that's why it strikes me as a double-edged sword. It can be incredibly empowering, allowing the farmers to organize and mobilize in a way that traditional media would never have covered them. But at the same time, it gives rise to this crass uncivility. The thought that strikes me, if I were to offer a counterpoint is that the traditional criticism would be that the traditional media is dominated by a certain kind of view. And that kind of view is, and this is quoting general, uh, a, a lot of folks that I've heard who say this, is ignoring the silent mainstream majority. And the silent mainstream majority has found a voice with social media. Now, what do you have to say to that? It, it comes down to the word you use. It's a double-edged sword. Of course, it's provided the silent uh, uh, majority. It has empowered the so-called silent majority. It has perhaps uh, democratized the discourse by allowing more people to be part of the debate. But it also comes without any rules and regulations. Uh, you know, this discourse is taking place in the absence of any kind of code of ethics, any code of conduct. That's where the issue comes of uh, the manner in which uh, social media is used to uh, to promote some element of gender prejudice and violence, uh, caste prejudice and violence, uh, uh, religious uh, uh, hatred. Uh, you know, how do you then control, how do you control the vile, hateful comments that are up there all the time 
on social media people who make those vile uh, 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 comments are sometimes followed by the leaders of the day uh, who's going to control that it, it it's it's operating in this completely uncontrolled chaotic space at the moment and that to my mind makes it a double edged sword and i unless you are able to create some kind of a regulatory mechanism within which social media operates it's uh, it, 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 it's a recipe for anarchy that's right and i think this is a this is a good segue into the question of what if at all anything should we do about social media now last week you may have seen that senator elizabeth warren who's a democratic presidential candidate came out with a what i can what i think is a fairly provocative and radical proposal she said that if she is voted into power she is going to break up the big companies and if i were to quote from what she says she said today's big tech companies have too much power too much power over our economy our society and our democracy they've bulldozed competition used our private information for profit and tilted the playing field against everyone else and in the process they have hurt small business and stifled innovation that's why my administration will make big structural changes to the tech sector to promote more competition including breaking up amazon facebook and google mm-hmm. do you think this is something we can think of we should just break them down or maybe even in an indian context nationalize it look i don't even if you wanted to i don't know how you are going to actually be able to get uh, nationalize these that's these right maybe nationalization is a know, step uh, too far these yeah, are not indian companies uh, to begin with so a, a they are not indian companies b even when it comes to actual control uh in today's day and age technology is always going to be a step ahead of any controls that you try and put in place any policing that you try and put in place i think regulation is the best word to use you need to create a regulatory framework create a regulatory framework within which uh, companies are forced to uh, comply and non compliance leads to uh, suitable punishment uh, at the moment i think there's a sense that you can get away with whatever you want to do uh, and i think that's troubling i think that is where but but it's you know at the moment it's happening much to ad hoc suddenly the parliamentary committee of parliament decides we are going to summon the twitter head or the it minister says i'm going to call in mark zuckerberg you know that's not going to be that's no solution i think we need a regulatory architecture maybe it has to be a global regulatory architecture since these are global companies uh but even in the indian context i think you do need some kind of a regulatory architecture in which these big companies are made to function and if they don't i think you're going to have to find ways in which uh, they are without going the chinese way yes. you know the, the the danger of what you a lot of what you said is that it it's almost as as if suggesting what the chinese have done is is perhaps the ultimate solution that you sort of completely police these uh, these that was the great firewall yeah it's no. never going to happen in a country mm. like india it will be resisted there'll be protests mm. i hope at least yes mm. uh, is it even desirable so yeah. you, so you prefer this to government control look the experience of government control in this country is awful that's right uh you know it 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 never really leads to genuine regulation it leads to censorship and i don't think that's what we want i think we need some kind of a broad uh, regulatory mechanism to which everyone conforms including tv channels i think tv channels at times have also got away with far more than they should uh, because i think the regulatory framework remains weak uh and if we could have maybe on the lines of ofcom uh, i you know in in the context of television of course but if if we can evolve a social media architecture within which big companies 
are forced to function, mm. uh, I don't see why it shouldn't be tried. That's an interesting thought because one thing that uh, often comes to my mind is that at least those parts of the social media space which are used for public broadcasting, like your Facebook newsfeed or your Twitter messages, in that it seems to me that Twitter or Facebook is essentially like uh, the editor of a newspaper. It's using its, uh, people are using its forums to publish something. So do you think that it's time perhaps for, to not think of social media as a monolith? Think, break it up into different kinds of parts. And for the part which is essentially used for public broadcasting, we make them liable as editors of newspapers or TV channels. Huh? Yes, you can, but you know, drawing those lines is not so easy. Mm. Let's say I'm an individual who is uh, uh, sending out news through my Twitter feed or mm. through my Facebook news feed. Am I liable or is the uh, is Facebook or Twitter liable? Who, where mm. do, wh who is liable? Is it the platform or is it the individual who is using the platform? So currently the law is that the platform is not liable That's if right. it can show that it has taken some due diligence measures yes. to make sure that it's it's got its controls in place right uh, but still it's happening right it's happening all the time that that wild content is spread hate speech is spread and platforms it's not hurting platforms because it's not it's not the law that tells them to do anything more and it's right. not hurting them monetarily because but, actually this kind of wild talk is increasing their popularity sure but you know mm. we need deterrence i was glad to see in the morning newspapers that in the case of barkhada yeah, yes. uh, six uh, four people have been arrested uh they're all out on bail. I mean, one has been put in judicial custody because I think he specifically went well beyond just abuse into a, a sort of direct harassment. But uh, at least it's a start. Uh, but it took her initiative, her, it, you know, her labor. Sure. It wasn't as if the social media company intervened to protect her. It was The social media company does nothing to, uh, does very little, let's not say nothing, does very little to intervene in such cases. The individual intervened in this case, but the cyber crime at, uh, cell at least acted. Now, this was in, in the case of someone who is a well-known public figure. Would they act? In, in, in the case of someone who's not. Absolutely. Is, 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 is a huge question. Not every Indian has access to the, the policing system. Uh, not everyone has access to, to those who are law enforcers. So I think, I, I think people need to feel strengthened, emboldened, empowered to be able to do it. Companies need to be much more conscious that their platforms are being misused. And they cannot shrug off liability by saying, look, we're an open source platform. We don't believe in, in any form of controls or any form of censorship. That has to change. How that has to change is the question. How are you going to ensure that these large companies are made more liable? That's great. Can I just pedal you back to a final sort of thought, which is on the question of newspapers itself. Uh, do you think the day of the newspaper is over? Uh, because in a way, Orgo's earlier question was that somehow social media... Uh, allowed, and this is a very standard argument on the center and center right, that the social media in a way uh, enabled uh, people to freely express themselves in a way the liberal establishment was not allowing them to do so. This was Trump, this was also Modi's uh, critique of uh, the Indian media. So I'm just wondering where you see the role of uh, the editor, the role of the newspaper, uh, in will it come back? Uh, how do you sort of assess it? Uh, we're still reading them. We're still reading newspapers. You still write commentary in, in, in major newspapers in India. Who is the gatekeeper? 
Hmm. You know, who is the gatekeeper at the moment? I, you know, in a newspaper, at the end of the day, you have a line at the end, uh, the, re- the resident editor responsible for, for content. Uh, so at least you know who is that individual responsible as a gatekeeper for what goes in the newspaper. There was a huge question mark whether he's responsible only for the editorial content or also for the advertising uh, that, that, that goes in. But at least there is some clarif- you know, th- there is someone willing to take responsibility. Who is that person who is responsible for the content on Twitter, on Facebook, on uh, uh, through WhatsApp messages? Who is that individual responsible if fake messages are being sent out? It's not clear. So I, in that sense, the old-fashioned newspaper at least retains an element of credibility and sanctity, uh, which I don't think uh, the, the new age media does at the moment. The new age media operates in, in this sort of crazy vacuum. Uh, where where there are no rules and and regulations, the old world media may be in decline in terms of younger people no longer reading newspapers. Many of them read them online. Uh, I still do think it has a useful role to play, particularly in a country like India. You still have very large circulating regional newspapers, apart from the English language newspapers. And, you know, you go to a small town, people are still over their coffee reading a newspaper. Uh, Yes, the mobile phone has taken over uh, a lot of the instant communication and the breaking news uh, alerts that you might get. I keep seeing uh, people sort of watching videos now only on YouTube. So I can see the, the growing space for that. But I don't think that the print media in a country like India is entirely ever going to disappear. And I think they have at least... As I said, there is a credibility and a sanctity associated with the newspaper. The process of of news gathering and who is the gatekeeper does exist. I wish Facebook had an editor. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, and actually, the numbers for newspaper readership support your argument because yes. actually, if I were to see the numbers, it has gone up. Yes, the that's only right. country in the world where it's notable country in the world where it's gone up from 295 million in 2014 mm-hmm. to 407 million. In that's because Orgo, I think a lot of the, the the large newspaper publishing houses in India have made a greater effort to have multiplicity of editions, reach out to smaller and places, you know, mobile apps, mobile apps. Uh, but you know, I think I think therefore. They are fighting a tough battle. <laughs> yeah. But at least they are fighting the battle because, you know, it's a question of survival. But I was actually thinking more in terms of generation of political discourse uh, in a democracy where, in a way, newspapers in this country had led a, a very, you know, had, had a very glorious past, uh, both of dissent as well as of, as it were, uh, setting the tone of political argument. And now I'm wondering where the source of political argument beyond, as it were, the party political hacks who come out, you know, day in, day out on Twitter or on television who come, uh, you know, where where will it, what will happen to that? Because this is where the right wing has been very aggressively opposed to the traditional media as well. Look, first of all, let's be, let's be clear, Shruti, that even today, a lot of stories are broken in the print media. That's correct. You know, investigative stories are done in the print media in a manner that television is never able to do. So let's not completely suggest that they can't set the narrative or they can't set the agenda. They can if they do better journalism. There's absolutely no doubt that there is still space for that. But perhaps they are fighting a a, a, a battle in, 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 in a changing technological space where eventually all of them will perhaps have to go online one day. 
they may have no option. It may be the only way to ensure uh, uh, survival. That's possible. Uh, but the, the big newspapers will survive in India. I, I refuse to accept that uh, this is a country where it's either or. I think India is, is a multimedia society, uh, much more than most other societies. The other interesting point that you made is I think the, let's be also clear that while that traditional media uh, dominated, it was a very left liberal domination. And in a sense, the rise of social media has come to challenge that left liberal domination. And that's when the strongman right-wing leader has used social media as an ally in the belief that traditional media never really accepted the right-wing as a legitimate uh, player in Indian politics or indeed global politics, uh, which is where I think the Modis of the world come. They wanted to bypass traditional media because they felt traditional media is hostile to us. And they found in the emergence of social media just the ideal platform at the right time to send out their message. There's been an amazing confluence between yes. the rise of the right, the rise of social media, the decline of traditional media, uh, all of which I think has, in a sense, uh, made the left liberal establishment nervous and worried, uh, at times legitimately so when data is manipulated or news is manipulated. But perhaps it was waiting to happen. I think there were far too few people uh, running the show, uh, you know, uh, determining uh, the agenda of the country. I mean... The editor of the Times of India famously, what, almost 25 years ago said he was the second most important person in the country. Uh, I don't think any editor of the Times of India or anyone else will be so presumptuous in the future. Uh, uh, and I think that's changed. I think, I remember covering an election in 1996 on Doordarshan, uh, you know, and, and that was the only uh, channel available at the time uh, on in the electronic medium to cover an Indian election, which went on for three days because there was no electronic voting machine. But it was a monopoly. So you only, uh, you had no choice at all. Compare that to what you're going to get in 2019, where you have these hundreds of channels, each competing frenetically for eyeballs. You have social media preparing itself for the elections, Facebook platforms, Twitter will have a feed. But sometimes, just sometimes, don't you feel nostalgic about Doordarshan? Oh, I, I, I feel, I, I, I feel nostalgic about Doordarshan. I feel nostalgic about Times of India. I feel nostalgic about uh, 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 an era in which news was processed and disseminated in a more languid manner, if I may use the word, uh, not in this frenetic Usain Bolt style of journalism. You know, where it's it's all about who's first with breaking news. I think that's the big transformation that's taken place. And, and to my mind, uh, you know, I, 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 I am personally glad that I saw the old world because in a sense, then you can appreciate the, the new better when you've actually had a slice of the old as well. I Otherwise, can confess, I just got in there and saw <laughs> Doordarshan yeah. for a little bit. I call myself the penumbral generation. So I crossed <laughs> over. I did the crossover. But I remember I was very nervous in 1994 in doing television. And I never really thought, and I still perhaps at times feel that the camera is a bit of an obstruction uh, when you want to cover a, a story, when you want to talk to people. Uh, people tend to uh, sort of really uh, speak with greater candor when they don't have the camera in their face. And uh, to that extent, I think the camera is, a, is, is, is the villain of the piece at times. How do you see the 2019 election campaign unfolding? And what are your thoughts on that vis-a-vis 
social media as well as other campaigns and the fact that other parties have wisened up uh, to social media as well? Well, I think it's very clear that uh, as we are already seeing that the so uh, that the 2019 election campaign is being fought on a mobile phone near you. Yes. Uh, if 2014 was being fought on a television screen near you, 2019 is being fought on a mobile near a screen near you. Uh, every speech of every leader is now live on YouTube. That's where people are consuming it. Some consume small bits. Some consume the entire amount. But it's you know it's and 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 it's the it's the geo revolution. Geo or Ginedo, as I call it, uh, is the way Indian politics is being fought. Uh, the very fact is, and, and, and because Narendra Modi has tended to, to set the agenda in these matters, the manner in which he's now using social media to put across his messages is clearly, again, a message to the other parties that, you know, joy, uh, follow me or, or lose out. So I can see the other parties doing it. But the fact is, resources. yes are much greater with the ruling party at the moment. Uh, the media itself remains uh, obliged to the state in a manner that troubles me much more than ever before. So and a rising monopoly doesn't? The, the rising monopoly of information? Of certain business houses? The rising monopoly of certain business houses, yes, is also troubling uh, because I think it enables... Con it, it becomes easier for the government to control. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, the media's core function was, we were the outliers, we were the mm -hmm. cockroaches, That's we were right. meant to be anti-establishment. Mm -hmm. I think what, what has happened over time is because the business model, and that's an entirely different debate, mm -hmm. the business model has been under such serious threat of television in particular, that you're more and more dependent now on the government. And thereby those lines that existed between government and uh, independent media and so-called independent media blurred. But look, again, some of the more independent media is coming out on the internet. That's correct. And, 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 and people are realizing that maybe social media, maybe uh, internet is mm. the space, maybe online media is the space where you can have your say without being constrained by the revenue resource model of TV. Yeah, and uh, just one last thought from me is that when we think about regulation of social media, which is the word that you used, uh, we think of the gatekeeper. We think mm -hmm. of the tech platform. We think of uh, the other uh, messaging apps that exist. What about the people? Because ultimately, it's about the market. Mm -hmm. Because the government and the tech platform will always have certain interests. It's also about the people who make this work. And given that the elections and democracy is ultimately about the people, what do you think about the role that users like you, me, persons on the street uh, have when we are using social media? Is there a change that we... Think are we, we just can... consumers or uh, or do we have certain duties uh, on it? Uh, you know, it, that's a fascinating question. But I think at the moment, we are essentially consuming it like a new toy. You know, I, I I watch my driver, for example, laughing his guts out when he sees some of these fun videos on politics. Uh, you know, the stand-up comedian has been revived. Absolutely. By, <laughs> by, by online media and by social media. Uh, so I think it's seen as, you know, increasingly news as entertainment is, is, the, is the overall uh, philosophy. Uh, it's not as news as information and empowering the individual. That's worrying because then you're, it's very easy to create this herd mentality of people who sort of follow the leader blindly and don't want to hear alternative viewpoints. I mean, we are all living in echo chambers. Right. 
let's be honest, we are all living in our own echo chambers, wanting to see and hear what we want to see and hear, rather than hear the other side. And that creates, in my view, a more them versus us polarized society. And dangerous for democracy. And possibly dangerous for democracy. And that's exactly what's happening across the world at the moment. Them versus us, polarized, each group following its own leader, unwilling to have dialogue. There's a lovely Hindi word called savad. But yes. we have less and less of savad, more and more of vivad, more and more of confrontation, less and less of consensus building. And this is exactly why you should listen to this podcast where we are the antithesis of all the vivad and hopefully more of the samvad. Thanks very much, Rajdeep, thank for joining you, us Sargo today. Shruti, thank you very much. And thanks very much and uh, look forward to future episodes of this podcast uh, in the coming weeks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.